1: Very recently, Chipanda Cimbalow was featured on The Black Expat, and his interview was rather popular. Chipanda, who's a Berlin-based journalist, shared his experiences about the multiple identities he holds as a Zambian, American, Black, gay man living in Europe. As you can imagine, there was a lot to unpack, and we didn't get to it all. So he's back. In this episode, while he was on the road in Italy, we decided to take a closer look at everything we just couldn't get to the first time. We talked the concept of European identity, global citizenship, being a black journalist in white media spaces, and the racial dynamics of African passports. And that was just for starters. Welcome to the Global Chatter. you doing today? Well, I'm
2: doing quite well. It's a fairly rainy day where I am. Um, um, actually, I happen to be in Verona, Italy today. So, um, But the weather is not as sunny as, you know, the country sounds. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, you're so... I, I feel like every time you and I are trying to meet up for a story, you are either are coming from somewhere or you're going somewhere. <laughs> That's literally... I remember the last time I think you were coming... I, I wanna say from somewhere in Eastern Europe and then you were you're about to head out. So do you find yourself traveling a lot? Obviously you're in Germany, is that for work or is that just you?
2: I mean, um, I think I've traveled quite a, a bit within Europe this year, more than I usually would have just because of course <laughs> um, a lot of travel has been restricted to Europe. And um, and I also happen to be, I'm, I'm, I'm dating a guy who likes to travel and is not very <laughs> <laughs> keen on staying at home when he has time off, so we've sort of tried to use the um, opportunity to sort of, I mean, despite Corona to like get out and, you know, go to places where we can still go. And this is why we're in Italy. This time it was one of the few places we could actually get to. uh, Even within Europe, there's some restrictions. You can still move around, but there's like quarantine Mm -hmm. restrictions and all sorts of things going on. And there's also, of course, a huge fear uh, for a lot of us that we just won't Mm -hmm. be able to travel, you know, in two months at all, you know? And so of course, Mm -hmm. you know, you might as well do it when you can.
1: (laughs) Right? And so where have you been? I guess that brings the next question. Where have you been? Obviously, you're in Italy, and full disclosure, I've been to Italy, and I love Italy. But have you been anywhere anywhere? At least somewhere you hadn't been prior to COVID, or has it all been places that
2: you've revisited? I mean, actually, I hadn't been to Italy prior to COVID, and it's really—I'm oh, really? exactly—I'm really lucky because I had been putting it off. Uh, I didn't want to travel. I didn't want to travel to Italy alone because um, I wanted to travel with a friend, and I just thought there's yeah. all these stories also about racism in Italy that I'm aware of as a black person, and I thought if yeah. I'm gonna be in Italy, I want to do it with a friend, and there was a friend in Rome, but she moved back to Australia. And so it didn't like work out. That was the plan this year. And it happened right about the time Corona happened. That was when I was probably Mm going to head um, out to Rome. And then, um, then my boyfriend, you know, offered me like, like let's drive to Austria and Italy. And I was like, okay, why not? And so we were in Venice, which is empty. And it's like the best time to be in Venice, which sounds horrible, you know, because of course, you know, um, the people, the locals are not happy about, some of the restrictions, they are needed, of course, and they're necessary. But at the same time, you know, businesses are struggling. So in a sense, it's also a way to support, you know, businesses there, you know, by traveling. We're allowing people to at least make a little bit of money as well. So um, everybody has been really, like, welcoming. And it's been quite a nice experience because, of course, it's just not as touristy as it is. And that's also a good thing because you can, you know, you don't have to line up for a whole hour to get into, like, a, you know, a site or anything.
1: I'm actually surprised as much of a world traveler, at least I perceive you to be, that this is your first trip to Italy.
2: Uh, yes, I, I am surprised too. But it, it's, it's been on my list for a while, and I had put it off just because I thought that, you know, I didn't want to be a black guy traveling alone in Italy. and. Yeah this time around I just sort of got the opportunity and with my boyfriend he we thought we could drive around Austria and (laughs) Italy and so I said why not
1: (laughs) yeah no um yeah I mean I could definitely see some hesitation about traveling around Italy as a black person I mean I've definitely read the stories um particularly with immigrants who've been targeted. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, and I, I, I read more of those after I had gone to Italy because I think I went back maybe four or five years ago. But yeah, I, I know that there was a period at least, and I don't know if it's settled down or not, where there were definitely immigrants, definitely a number of African immigrants who were being targeted. And, you know, I mean, we're both Black, right? So no yeah. one's, <laughs> no one stops and asks... <laughs> where where are you from before Before they attack you so i could definitely see that being a concern um but in the greater context so where in italy have you traveled so far or have you just kept it to a very small area
2: Uh, We've been to Venice, uh, and then we were in Bologna as well, and then Florence, and now we're in Verona, so that's been within a span of, what, I guess five days. (laughs) So,
1: oh my God, oh my God, no, and you're, like, you, I mean, you were saying this, this is amazing, this, I know we're in the middle of Corona, and I know that Italy was hard hit, (laughs) and I know that, that, and it hit their tourism industry, but I mean, it's kind of a nice time to go somewhere without the crowds. <laughs> so
2: that's exactly one reason to be here. And I, I actually, a uh, funny story because I was, um, I was posting, of course, some of the images and then a colleague from work. Um, so like, you know, a picture from, Venice that I posted on my Instagram and then she was like you know what you're like the third person I know who's in Venice right now so, <laughs> that was so funny so of course we didn't see that many tourists and I was like oh and then I was like so who are the other two people because I haven't <laughs> seen them on the street
1: yet. <laughs> I mean you know when God gives you lemons you make lemonade and and I mean if nothing else you're supporting the local tourism industry and I know I and I would imagine there, like many places around the globe, have been so impacted by COVID that economically you've just lost all those dollars, well, or euros, right? And so, yeah, you, you can chalk it up to I'm supporting the, the Italian tourism industry while
2: I'm while I, while I back. And I mean, I have to admit, it's not like it's super, you know, it's not like it's the same being a tourist now as it was say a year ago, because of course, Mm. you know, you have to wear masks on the streets as well here in Italy. Yeah. They are like, you know, super strict compared to like Germany where you don't have to wear masks on the street. And so it's, been kind of restrictive in terms of you have to wear a mask all the time and if you go to a restaurant you only take the mask off when you sit down so um of course if you know if you found that wearing a mask you're going to be fined like a thousand euros so it's it's quite (laughs) strict and so it's nothing like um even where i live in berlin and and yet of course it's still an attractive time to visit you know, certain places just because, you know, they've emptied out. And this is like the opportunity to see certain sites, which are just not overcrowded, where you just like, you know, you don't end up waiting for an hour or 19 minutes mm-hmm. and, you know, being frustrated with people trying to like, you know, take some instagram images is selfies that <laughs> it just sort of gets in your nerves and so I, i'm glad i'm here now and, and i'm glad i can maybe support the locals who've been struggling and uh and i've also met, met some locals who um my boyfriend happens to know and so it's also been interesting to you know have an exchange with them so can it's I, been fun
1: can i tell you you are so right because what i first of all when I went to Italy, it was in the dead of the summer, you know, in the northern hemisphere, which means everyone and their mom was there. Mm-hmm. And when I when I was in Florence, I, I think I have photos of throngs of people, many of them who were Americans because they were wearing um, what we call in the U.S. I know it means something else in the rest of the world, uh, fanny packs, and <laughs> were looking we looking very American, and. And I remember I was there for an educational experience and the women I was with, very few of them had ever really traveled before and every two seconds it was a photo in front of something major but you had to wait for like whoever was taking the photo in front of the the river or in front of the piece of artwork and I think we were looking at Michelangelo's David Mm -hmm. and oh my gosh, well first of all that's another spot where you can imagine everyone is there to take a photo with and then it was it's like, get your photo and get it quick because there's like 800 people. So um, yeah, I, I would imagine it is, it's, it is a little bit different experience. And of course, now we're all wearing masks. And I, I didn't realize that, they, that you're required to wear them when you're out and about, as opposed to just in a building, which is what's happening in the US. Yeah. Um, so I mean, so if you're not wearing one, they really will just come up and find you or? I, I haven't tried it but okay. I've been told <laughs> I think some, I think I don't want to
2: spend a thousand euros for <laughs> not following rules. So I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be trying that one out.
1: <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I mean, and once again, we can understand because Italy was one of the countries that at least we saw in Europe that was heavily hit. So I, obviously they're trying to take those precautions, but I guess then, which makes me curious, what has it, the, what has been the experience in Germany? So in terms of was Germany restrictive during kind of the peak or at least the first peak of this or did you find, okay, you have to wear a mask when you go into certain places but things mm-hmm. were a little bit normal?
2: I, I mean, to be honest, Germany hasn't been as restrictive as other European countries and um, we've. Uh, I think Germany as a country in itself has been fairly lucky and I don't know if that's a combination of uh, good rules and a good healthcare system or if it's mm. just um, you know, I have no idea what it is, but I think it's a combination as what a lot of people have been saying. And uh, I think I've been very lucky to live in a place like Germany at this time, just because Mm -hmm. um, it didn't hit Germany as bad as it hit France or the UK, for instance. And even the restrictions in the UK, France, the Netherlands and Belgium, Italy, Spain, Mm -hmm all far more restrictive than germany at least um where i live berlin and uh bavaria was quite restrictive but still it was not by any means as bad as you know uh italy or spain um at its worst Mm -hmm. and they had lockdowns that lasted like i think eight weeks now lockdown lasted really pretty much i think about four to six weeks Mm -hmm. um the hard lockdown and that was even as it wasn't even as strict as uh, the one in Italy. Way you know, I was speaking to my uh, boyfriend's friends here, and they were telling me, it, you know, they had to like they would celebrate, like families had, you know, would fight over who would take out the trash because that was a moment, like (laughs) get out of the house. Like that was the joke. I don't know if it was true, but that was the joke. And we just didn't have that in Germany whereby, you know, we were allowed to take walks. You could, you know, go walk in the park. Mm -hmm. You could walk without a mask in the park. You could, you know, do whatever in terms of, you know, being out in nature or even just taking a walk on the street and I think that's quite a huge difference and I think mm-hmm. um, as a result you know and corona the coronavirus actually hit at a time when you know spring was you know just about to happen and then of course mm-hmm. it was spring so the fact that we couldn't really go out didn't disturb most people as much whereas of course now it's getting colder and I don't know how mm-hmm. it's gonna turn out if we you know, <laughs> get further restrictions.
1: So I'm, I'm curious then um because I'm always curious about how, the, how other people perceive other places handling the same thing. Mm-hmm. So obviously living in Germany, I'm, and you're in the media, <laughs> I'm sure you saw and have been watching the U.S. Um, and kind of the U.S. response. How do you, how, how do you think that was perceived, at least in your circle or, you know in your corner of the world like what 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 was the perception and i'm also asking you of course and we'll get into this a little bit more about identity but as someone who at least is a a u.s passport holder and has lived here
2: well (laughs) i think it's been embarrassing um to see how the u.s has dealt with the coronavirus obviously um it's pretty clear that um the leadership uh, that the United States has had hasn't done a good job of communicating, you know, the threat of the coronavirus and also showing that it's taking that threat very seriously. And I think it's fair to say, you know, as a journalist, I try to be as objective Mm -hmm. as I can, but I think um, the, you know, the U S (laughs) administration hasn't done a good job of really communicating um, the threat of the coronavirus. And I think even Trump's, you know, him being diagnosed with the coronavirus did not appear to have really changed the tone of how the White House has been communicating that. And and I think that hasn't been the case here in Europe or, Mm. you know, in Germany, or even if you look at, say, you know, the European Union with Brussels Mm -hmm. and it hasn't been an issue. And so I think um, you, we can't compare there. And I, I think it's just sort of being every moment I feel like, oh, God, it's so embarrassing. And um, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I don't want to watch the news. I don't want to I don't want to watch the press conferences because I. it's just sort of like I want to, you know, um, I just want I, I, it's just sort of embarrassing you feel ashamed and that's not a good place to be in and of course seeing the numbers of cases and mm-hmm. also just the health inequality and of course there's also inequality within Europe in terms of you know different social classes but healthcare is seen as a right and not a service and um, mm. I think this has sort of been a wake-up call for the United States that you know the fact that some people don't have access to good health care means that there's a danger Danger for everyone else, you know, Mm -hmm. and of course, you know, um, also maybe having an economy that makes people work two, three jobs and having people who don't have savings and all Mm -hmm. of that, that plays a huge role when something like coronavirus hits because we just don't have like the, you know, the types of um, social services that you need to be able to help people uh, when they're going through a hard time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think it's, you've touched on this. I think it's really interesting when you are an American and you're outside of the country and you're kind of looking in, right? Because Mm -hmm. I've said this before to other people, you know, you're with the greater world who's watching it. It's almost like looking at a movie, except you know what's going on behind the scenes because you know how the cookie is made. Right. So, so even thinking about like watching how this is all played out. I know that for me, you know, when I lived abroad and things were happening in the U S there's some things that seemed so clear to me. And I didn't know if it was a, And well, actually I shouldn't say this. I think a part of it was a result of the fact that I was outside of the U S. Mm-hmm. So to me, certain things look very strange. <laughs> right. And just said, well, why don't you just do this? Right. Like you're watching a movie, but I think it's, it's a little bit different when you're in the environment because, you know, you're all kind of breathing the same air and having these arguments, don't, but don't realize that there are other options that are available. And, and, and to your point, I, I agree. I think that one thing COVID has done is that it's exposed a lot of our weaknesses um, yep. and a lot of areas of growth, right? Like healthcare is a big one with so many people working from home, child um, childcare, has been a big issue as well. And, and, and the burden that many families have had to try to do the duality of meeting the jobs needs. Cause obviously they need to get paid. As exactly. well as taking care of their families. And so, I mean, I, those are the two right off top the, of my head. And then of course, the, the disparities in, in healthcare, especially when you look at, at, at black and Brown communities here who have had disproportionate numbers of Fatalities because of this, and so, yeah, I, I think it's 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 weird. the whole The whole thing has been weird um, and 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 strange. And so, uh, since you mentioned the current occupant of the of the White House, I'm curious. I mean, you're an American abroad. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Uh, are you? Do you vote? <laughs> Are you registered
2: to vote? Yes, I am registered to vote and I have voted because I, I definitely think it's definitely uh the duty of every American, even those I don't agree with, to, to vote, to <laughs> pass the vote. And and um that's the part that's part of the democratic process. And I think this this was, you know, as important any time as any time and at any point in history, but just because I feel so strongly about what has been happening as a person. And I feel like, uh, it's important to, you know, use your voice. And one of the ways of using your voice is just, you know, by voting.
1: Absolutely. No, I totally hear that. And so I guess if we've talked half of your identity, what is, how do you see your identity both as an American and how do you see your Zambian identity? that
2: <laughs> yeah i mean i try I, do, I never think of myself as american or zambian um, mm. obviously of course uh, until like when i'm being asked to fill out a piece of paper or you know cross <laughs> right. the border and then suddenly it does take on a certain meaning and so um i feel like in general i, I, I I, I would. I wouldn't like to call myself Zambiano American, and I, I think I spoke. I've spoken yeah. about this before in the past. I, I call myself Zambian American because, on one end, I travel on a U.S. passport, but on the other end, of course, there are certain perceptions of you know how I've been also socialized, how I've grown up, and that's probably Zambian in some ways. But I, I just think of myself as me. yes
1: yeah, <laughs> of course. Things.
2: Sounds a bit narcissistic, perhaps, but I, <laughs> me. But I think it's it would be more important for more people to think of themselves as individuals, because I think there's so much um, in terms of um, national... Well, if you look at nationalist movements and mm-hmm. identity, and I think people wrap their identities in um, the countries they belong to. For me, uh, I think that's problematic because that leads to um, less of. Um, it, you, you're, you're less likely to connect to people who are like from other places if you base mm-hmm. so much of who you are on where you come from. And I think if you see yourself as being an individual who's maybe, you know, um, a collection of different things, then you are willing and more ready to embrace other people and there are different types of identities. And I think that's why I think I'm not a huge fan of, you know, feeling closely associated with one place or the other. And mm-hmm. I've lived in Europe for so long right now. I've <laughs> been here for 13 years and I, I'm i not ready to call myself European yet.
1: I was going to say, are we There's calling you European? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I'm not ready. I once had made that mistake. I'm kidding, but I, but I mean, I once you know I referred to myself like I kind of feel European. Once I when, in my earlier years here, and then mm-hmm. I had a um you know a German colleague at the time, and she just like laughed out loud, and she looked at me and said, "You you will never, you can never be European," and was oh. laughing, and it was like I was like I I was referring to the idea of certain things. And I was referring to, like, certain experiences, like, you know, speaking several different languages, you know, being um, at home in different cultures. And I think, for me, that kind of existence is extremely European. And that's what I was referring to, but she just sort of laughed, And I think I I kind of understand that, you know, the longer I live here, and I kind of feel like, you know, the European identity is not as um, embracing or as encompassing as... The American identity, for instance, which despite all its issues. <laughs> yeah. <you> know, <laughs> well tell me they,
1: <laughs> I was gonna say, well tell me more about that. What is what is the, the nuances you see with the quote unquote European identity versus maybe an American identity?
2: Well, I think an American identity is more at home with being um different from whatever is the norm of what it's supposed to be to to be American. So, you know, it's always never been a standard identity because there's always been, um, you know, African-Americans and there's Mm -hmm. always been, um, you know, indigenous Americans. Um, Mm -hmm. maybe they were referred to differently, you know, and of course discriminated against, but, um, at the end of the day, being American, even though it has been largely driven by white Americans, um, as as a country and as also an identity, there's always been the other within the American, which has been extremely present. Mm. And of course, in the 20th century, even more present. And and now ever more so than ever. Mm -hmm. So I think it's been obvious that, you know, the idea of Americanness is broader than, (laughs) you know, ideas about looking a certain way or even speaking a certain way. And, Mm. um, You don't even have to speak English fluently to be an American. And I think that is the difference. And I think here in Europe, um, there is a huge difference in terms how even, you know, and when we talk about Europe, you know, people say I'm European, but I think at the end of the day, they're French and German and whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And when we look look at those national identities and the coronavirus, by the way, also showed that because of course, Mm when countries were closing their borders and trying to also sometimes, you know, protect certain resources for their own populations, because of Mm -hmm. course, you know, who do the politicians answer to? They answer to, their own, their voters, they don't answer to all of Europe. And that was what we saw in the initial weeks um, of those lockdowns in Europe, you know, with the borders closing, which was unthinkable. And the whole idea of Europe is also about the freedom of movement, of people and goods. And that was something that was, you know, shown uh, by the coronavirus, that people like politicians were willing to get rid of this idea to protect their (laughs) own populations. Of course. But I think the idea of being European or German is so much based on also language or even French, but French even more so language um, and speaking a certain way and, you know, and maybe even looking a certain way. And most of the time when people think German or French, definitely German, for instance, they would think it's a white person. And yet, yeah. of course, there are so many Germans who are not white and so, and have a certain type of name even. Um, and so if you have a name that is, you know, Asian, African, or, you know, from, another part of the world, then obviously people will automatically think that you can't be German. And so I think the reaction that I had from this colleague of mine at that time years ago was just a reflection of, you know, the reality. And as I've lived here longer, I've come to understand that. And I also feel not comfortable. I'm not willing to call myself European, um, at any point, and I feel more comfortable calling myself an American to this day or an African, a Zambian Mm -hmm. to this day, even though I haven't spent, you know, that much time in those places um, in recent years.
1: I I mean, this is like a super good point because I... As you were speaking, I was thinking, OK, you are right. When you do think about the US, history is crazy, right? And there's a lot of parts of it that aren't, aren't the best. And there's obviously been issues with discrimination and, and whatnot. But you are right that there's always been different groups, even from the early onset. And I think maybe to your point, because we were never homogenous, it's this idea of American can be that umbrella for a lot of people. Um, Whereas I think it might be a little bit different if you are in a country where there's this very specific historical story that started with certain clans and tribes or whatever that became a nation. Um, And I, I, the other thing that I thought, and this is almost like a comparison is that to the point that you made, if Europeans, if we have this idea, we're thinking Europeans are similar, but they're really not because you just kind of laid out and gave examples with these other countries, it almost seems like the same concept we do with African countries, right? Mm -hmm. Where someone says, well, what does it mean to be African? And you and I both know they're 50 something plus countries and the experiences of someone who's in Zambia is not necessarily the similar to someone who is in Cameroon. and, but yet, but yet, we we seem to group people by a geographical region, and, and honestly, sometimes it's by skin color too, to be honest, right? We say a they're... lot of times it is, by <laughs> time. <laughs> right? We're like, they're European, i.e. they're white, <laughs> is what a lot of people may think. Um, they're African, i.e. they're black, mm-hmm. and just assume, well, all these countries that are living next to each other, and the people may have a majority that share the same skin color, have a continental way of living, which quite frankly isn't true, because I would imagine living in Albania or North Macedonia is very different than living in Luxembourg or in France.
2: I'm pretty sure about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is very different. I haven't been to Albania
2: or North Macedonia, I'm by the way. i
1: just spitballing. I could be wrong. I'm sure someone will send me a message, but I'm just saying, I feel like at a very basic level, even Eastern Europe and Western Europe... Yep they're very different nuances. Um, so then, do you buy into this concept? And I've, I've, I've always kind of wrestled with this term, especially in the recent years, of, of global citizenry, right? So being a global citizen, I've heard people use it for and against. And is that something that you thought of, or you even think it applies to you, or not so much?
2: I, I don't know. Of course, the problem with a term like global citizen um, is that it can obviously be taken and used by, you know, different types of people to uh, imply, like, you know, uh, an elitist group of people that, you know, um, excludes uh, people from certain social classes, of people of a certain education. And of course, I think um, I think initially the term global citizen was, of course, very encouraging in a way because obviously it meant that you were from everywhere, like you were someone like me. But I feel like I, I, these days I'm less willing to use the term global citizen, and I'll be more like, I feel like I'm definitely what um, I think this is the term that um, who's the author of uh, that book? Ghana must go. I, I know oh her yeah name.
1: yeah. Um, I, I, um, I see her face in the TED Talk. Uh,
2: I didn't know her yeah. name, but I but it's, it should be on the tip of my tongue. I should have looked it up. I didn't <laughs> know I would say this, but um, she is the author of "God I Must Go," and she she wrote an essay which was in. Um, I think uh I I can't remember which publication anymore and it was she came up with this term afropolitan and I think that is a that that is definitely what I see myself um and I was wondering should I call myself afropolitan now mm, I thought love that word. maybe that would be something that's more interesting and I I mean also another person I would also bring up um his name is um he he wrote he's the author of a book Afropean. and um oh,
1: yeah, Johnny which, Pitts
2: johnny pitts and i haven't spoken with him i was hoping that i would maybe at some point speak with him or interview him and i read his book and i marked it i think i should have probably spent more time marking the things i didn't want to read again <laughs> it's
1: he's on he's I'm on like, he's i was gonna say he's on my list
2: he follows us on twitter so <laughs>
1: that's
2: and, and i would i would recommend his book to anyone who wants to sort of you know, at least understand what African black identity, African and black identity in Europe is sort of about, you know, and sort of like mm. uh, diving into, um, you know, uh, black identity in Europe. I'll just say black because, of course, it's more encompassing, but of course, it includes blacks from everyone, uh, from everywhere, that is, for mm-hmm. every one of us. And um, he, I don't know if you know the premise of his book, whereby mm-hmm. he goes, um, to different cities in Europe and not every city, obviously, but different cities, different countries and, tr- and meets up with, you know, uh, black intellectuals and black artists and sort of like, you know, people um, with different like ideas and people who also, you know, are trying to um, fight um, in, for more rights or fight against discrimination of black people in, you know, in their countries. So it would be France, Belgium, the Netherlands. And, he, you know, he meets um, a couple of uh, Black people in Berlin as well. I wasn't too keen on his experience in Berlin, but I'm not going to get into that. That's the only part I didn't <laughs> like about the book, but everything else is good. So, <laughs> which is why I'm so desperate to speak with him. And, um, but that's what I wanted to just get into. I think there are varying, you know, experiences, but I think if you feel a, a certain level of comfort Comfort moving between countries and language, um, you know, and culture, obviously. And of of course, this sort of we talked about code switching last time, and this code switching then becomes more nuanced in that it sort of Mm. takes a form of where you're even shifting in terms of national identities uh, that, you know, ideas about national identity that people have. So at some point, you could be a little bit more French or a little bit more English or a little bit more you know, Cameroonian, Zambian or Congolese or whatever. And so if you have that ability to do that, I would say Afropolitan is what I would say because Mm -hmm. the blackness, you know, is sort of like as much as you would want to pretend it's not there just to have more of a comfortable experience. It's Mm -hmm. always something that other people are going to remind you of. And mm-hmm. I think this is where I'd feel more comfortable, like calling myself an Afropolitan rather than uh, a global citizen, uh, because I think being black uh, marks you in a very different way, or being mm. African, and which generally also means you're black, generally, not all the time, um, <laughs> yeah. marks you in such a way that... Um, you know, the Afro part or the African part is so visible on you, especially for, so, for those of us who actually did even spend time in, on the right. African continent. It's very right. different. I'll say Afropolitan would be the way to go.
1: Um, so Ghana must go. Tai Selassie. Exactly. I hope I'm
0: exactly. saying her daybreak. i take yeah. her
2: day break. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think she, at least at some point, she was living in Rome. So I think she'd be another person to talk about the Italian experience. <laughs> and in am <laughs> I, I did read about her a, 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 after I read her book and
1: yeah. And it it got a sitting on my Kindle and it sat for a minute. I, okay. I, I get busy, right? So I've, <laughs> I'm committed this year. I've read so many books. And so that one I've committed that I'm going to finish. And I definitely think I want to pick up an just because once again, I retweet their stuff all the time and I'm <laughs> constantly following them on social media and they follow Johnny puts, obviously behind an Afropean and he follows us. Um, but your your response to, to global citizenship is an interesting thing because I'm seeing this nuance that you've brought up, particularly with Black people who have traveled, right? Many of whom were third culture kids, right? So they grew up between borders. Um, but as they get older and and... I, I will say, to a certain degree, I've seen this conversation with some Asian uh, individuals who also grew up as their culture kids, and then also grew up, you know, between borders and 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 as expats, where the term doesn't really seem to to be as applicable as we'd like to believe it. And I'm thinking about a conversation I had uh, with a with a former African TCK who said. You know, she doesn't use the term anymore. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because, you know, she grew up as a TCK, highly mobile. And then for university, she went to Europe. And then it became a nightmare, though, once, you're, once her university experience was done, to stay in Europe. Mm-hmm. And as I was talking to her in another African TCK, they said okay, it it is a romanticized term because the reality is at the end of the day, you are limited by access and movement if you don't have the right kind of passport. Exactly. So she felt, I'm not going to use that term because part of the reason I'm where I'm at right now is because certain governments have said, I can't remain or I can't go or I can't come to their countries. Right. And so it, she's like, she's like, it doesn't even make sense. And once again, both of them have African passports and they are both very well traveled. Right. Particularly because of their childhood, but they were like, ah, it's, it's, it's an access thing. And the more, you know, she started talking about it, I realized, you know, it's true because you know, both of us are, are, However we got them, we we're both American passport holders, right? We were both born in the U.S. And so, you know, I think if we both wanted to be lofty about it, we could say we're global citizens. Well, of course, because we can go wherever we want to go, right? Well, I mean, some limitations may well not be. Any, not, not, well, not now, but in general. It's in, in general, when there's no pandemic, right? No one no. is saying, you know, and I've been, I don't know how you feel, but I've been keenly aware of someone who grew up in a household of mixed passports, right? Mm-hmm. I was the first one in my family to have an American passport. I think you know this. I was born in D.C., but everybody else, right? I have I have a sibling who was born here, but everybody else had to go through the naturalization process who wanted one. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen the immigration and I've seen the hassle and I've tried. You know, I, I'm thinking about a, a family trip we took me and my brother-in-law got there before the rest of the family because we were coming from one country. Everybody else was coming from somewhere else. You know, I'm in the line. And this was, this was in another African country. We were in, um, I was living in, in Qatar and we were traveling to Seychelles.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I was in line. First of all, I was in line for maybe five seconds. I don't even know if they even opened my passport. They just looked at it and were like, you're good. Right. I mean, they're asking him all these questions and he has a Cameroonian passport, right? And they're going to all these details. And then I'm finally and they're like, are you going back to Qatar and all this other stuff? And I finally go over there and go, brother-in-law, he's with me. He's not staying in the country. <laughs> and so, you know, just even thinking about that, it, the term really only still applies to a subset of people, even though on its face value, it seems like it applies to everyone. Exactly.
2: And and of course, I mean, the term, like you say, the term applies to um, a small uh, set of people. But it's not just that. It's also the fact that um, it also applies to people who, in general, look a certain way. And I think Mm. you and I, at least I would think I have to prove Mm -hmm. by showing my paper. So they have to see that passport. Whereas, you know, if I was like, you know, a tall blonde Mm white person or or even just white um, and walking and moving a certain way because of course even whites from certain countries don't also face quite some discrimination Uh, I think that and you know that would also make a huge difference and I think that's the fact it's also coming from certain white countries you know the U.S. Australia Canada Mm -hmm. Being, you know those countries the u k um, and of course some European countries makes a huge difference as opposed to maybe if you come from even i think you mentioned Macedonia but that, yeah you know, of might also make a difference so I mean of course even that is sort of marked and so I think um the idea of being a global citizen when you don't have a certain say paper a piece of paper and a certain amount of money in your bank account Mm -hmm. which can also maybe allow you to sort of pay your way um Mm -hmm. then of course you know you wouldn't say that you're a global citizen and i think um and then of course the whole term has been captured if you like by politicians to oh my god (laughs) say something you know and send a certain message about you know certain ideas about who's elitist and who's not. And, um, and that's why it's so problematic.
1: So I have a, like, I have a general question because you brought this up and I, <laughs> cause I'm just, I'm just curious, um, because you, you spent your childhood in, in Zambia and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I've, I need to be better about the history of, the southern part of the continent i'm <laughs> i'm very well in the <laughs> western part and i'm like i don't know what's always going on down there um so <laughs> it's that's terrible but so i would imagine zambia and i'm assuming like many of your neighbors had a significant white minority population right
2: yeah i mean in, um zimbabwe definitely had a significant white population um south africa still has a yes. significant white population and i think zimbabwe also still has a fairly high number of white people compared to like other African countries. I think Zambia it was always like one percent. Um okay. so you know I mean what but one percent is big if you go to <laughs> right. areas, you know, and that's also of course a question of um perception. Um but I think they were, and of course, they are white people who um, also played a role in fighting for independence. And, you know, mm. there was a vice president in Zambia who was white, you know, fairly recently, you know, in the last 10 years or so. And um, he was also a minister of agriculture when the country, you know, switched from... so-called one-party system and became a democracy and he was part of that government. Um, Guy Scott is his name and you can look him up if you like and so I think it's like there's this troubled you know relationship with colonialism which of course is linked to white people from Britain mostly (laughs) and (laughs) and he was also you know um, know, of Scottish origin but um (laughs) he has a Zambian passport and so did his father and so you know it's so sort of like oh it's sort of an awkward relationship but it's, it's still it can work so I think like the thing is that what I think growing up in a place like Zambia was sort of disturbing is that of course in a sense like white people were also othered but they mm. were othered in a way that they were privileged and right. they were seen as and they, they would get more for the same job because people naturally thought that they offered more or something like that. And of course, maybe they came with network networks that white people come with, you know, if you know people in Europe or, you know, in the United States, it gives you a different network given in business. And I think people are paying in a sense also for those networks. And I think, um, you go ahead. You were going to say
1: something. Yeah, no, because this, because this is then what I was curious about. So, if you're a white Zambian, for example, and I don't know if you necessarily can answer this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we 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 basically without we said it and then we didn't really, but we really talked about passport privilege. So, I wonder exactly if you are a white Zambian, do you still get? at least from your observation, do you still get sort of the the struggle that maybe a black Zambian has if they're traveling on that passport, i.e. if they're going to go get a visa, is it a little bit easier for them? Or is it still at the end of the day, you have a Zambian passport. And even though you might be going to a country where there might even be ancestral ties, it's still the same hoops. I don't, I don't know if you can actually speak to that, but I've always been kind of fascinated how that works. I actually, um, You're right. I think I'd like to
2: explore that.
1: Um, (laughs) There's a story that you can do, and then you can credit me because this is just me being nosy. Like I don't have an agenda here. I'm just no. I I like
2: that story. I mean, it's sort of interesting because, of course, I mean, I I do know white people who grow up in Zambia, and I think a lot of them I've never really spoken to about this. You know, I Mm. I think when we was the people I some of the people who were like in class with me uh, at primary school and moved on and they, you know, sort of their life trajectory was very, it was fairly different from mine. And, um, but I think they generally still got some, you know, like points of access that maybe the vast majority of the people I went to school with didn't necessarily get. And those would be things like, you know, if you had a grandparent who's from the UK or Mm -hmm. is British or German or whatever, um, then you could, you know, piggyback on, you know, uh, uh, grandmother's identity and get a European Mm -hmm. passport, you know? And so there's all these sort of, like, then they would be like dual nationals of the UK, Zambia. And so they can travel on a Zambian passport, but also on the British passport. And so that sort of gives them a different, um, you know, like, accessibility just to, you know, Europe and the rest of the world as well. And I think that's sort of the various differences. And of course, um, it doesn't matter, you know, how well educated I am I think even to this day if I walk into a room with a white person who maybe doesn't even have the same amount of education the first thing that people see is my skin color and I think they're still going to judge me by that and I think it's fair to say that most people in the world are not going to think of me as the person who offers you know who's going to offer more
0: Mm -hmm. in terms of
2: education. Education and experience, even if I do on paper, but right. if I don't speak and I don't say, I don't show that. And I think in general, that's just the way the world works, which is why we have Black Lives Matter protests across the world, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a reason that why that's been happening. And, you know, if you look at Guangzhou as well in China, where, you know, we had those protests mm-hmm. uh, following, you know, Africans being treated a certain way. In the Middle East, you know, it's been documented in terms of how Africans are treated. So I think there's a a general um type of racism against black people which is extremely pervasive across the whole world and that also plays a role in how you know we are perceived even in a professional environment
1: yeah no i mean i I feel like you just opened up a can of worms right in a good way (laughs) once again in a totally good way because you're talking and i was thinking of an example of a a friend of mine that i knew had moved to argentina married an argentinian man and You know, I think he had an Italian passport and he'd never been to Italy, (laughs) but his grandfather, right? Because their last name is Italian, right? Moved to Argentina and God knows when, (laughs) right? And it was, you know, through that lineage, he had access. Essentially, to a to a European passport, right? And so, yep. even even what you just said, if, if you're a white Zambian, right? If if the historical ties, and, and I, obviously, I would extrapolate this to other parts of of Africa that had significant white um, populations, right? That you know had been there for a while, not recent <laughs> immigrants, but yeah, you. I, I guess you still get that benefit of, you know, your family may have come from Belgium or they may have come from the UK or they may have come from the Netherlands, who knows how long ago but you still get that privilege. And so, I mean, I, I think that that is the story. I'm just, like I said, I've put that seed out there.
2: <laughs> and exactly. And I think that's kind of important that you mentioned that uh, when we're talking about anti-Black racism, the one way we could also look at that is, I don't know if you've heard of the Windrush generation yes. from yes. the Caribbean. And of yes. course the trouble that they had in the UK with some people whose papers got lost and, and had been living in the UK their whole lives and whatever. And then at some point they you know they would be like deported and there was it was sort of like a huge scandal within you know the UK um, regarding how some um, black people from the Caribbean who yes. had of course emigrated in the 50s I think in the 60s as well yeah. I think that was probably that time period and you know that rule doesn't apply to black people <laughs> right. uh, saying, you know if your grandparent uh, in the Caribbean had a British passport and then of course most of them didn't have a British passport <laughs> right. You know, so there's no like had British citizenship or whatever you can prove it, you know, and so it's sort of like the way these rules are applied in a sense also reveals. Like who's allowed in, and still, okay. in general, the people who are allowed in, they try to allow in more white people, and it's just how it works. And I think that's kind of an interesting uh, thing to sort of oh, look yeah. into. And I'm, um, I, I, I don't know. I think that's just something that like, I was thinking about right now. But I think it would be more interesting to speak to a British person or someone yeah. who's you know more familiar with that than say me.
1: <laughs> I would say absolutely. And I, you know, we're the black expats, so we can't. <laughs> we
2: don't-
1: quite
2: do yeah, that. I am, <laughs> just, I, I am privileged. Actually, so.
1: <laughs> so that's why I said, uh, if we could uh, punt it <laughs> to another communication team, I think that that would, I, I just think it's a unique thing, right? Because I, we, we sometimes take these things as face value, right? In terms of even access, but we, we don't explore how historical, the accesses, right? We just think, oh, this person was born in this country. Yeah, but every country has different policies in terms of who can get access to passports. And then all of a sudden you start to realize, well, you might think that this person and this person with the only nuanced difference being skin color, they're born in the same country, they would both have limited access until you start to realize that might not quite be the case, right? Because once again, depending on when their family came, what the rules were, you know they may still have access to a European country, for example, that mm-hmm. the average Zambian obviously is not going to have because they 're <laughs> people of the soil i guess they've they 've been there whereas depending on when your family immigrated from one of these other countries, you may still have access so yeah it 's just something i've i 've been fascinated for a while and haven 't figured out yet <laughs> how to get that story. Um, uh-huh. But then, I, I guess then, you know, obviously, if, if people read your interview before, and we've alluded to it, you work in the media. And so, um, what have been your experiences? And I, I know you've worked in a, in a couple of different places, but what has been your experience of sort of navigating working in the media? Particularly, you're in Germany, and you're particularly in a person as a person of color. And we've spent some time talking about immigration and these waves of immigration and, and sort of, you know, some of the rise of the rhetoric that we we're, we're seeing, I can't even just say it's Europe, right? Because obviously if you're looking at the United States, <laughs> you're seeing yep. some, some really interesting rhetoric come up, but what, what, I think what are the challenges for you as someone who is in the media and you're trying to report these stories, but then, is there attention because sometimes the stories you're, you might be hearing or reporting are also impacting people that may look like you? Um, just how do you, how do you navigate that?
2: Um, I mean, I think, I don't know, I mean, I'm trying to think about it because, of course, um, this year has been sort of an exception because this is the one mm-hmm. year I can say that I've been able to. Um, probably speak about my experiences as a black person, as starting you know, obviously with um, following the killing of George Floyd, then it became obvious that everybody was, that not everybody, but I think in general, the willingness to listen became more apparent. Uh, whereas before that, I, I think it just wasn't there because I think the discussion... Um, on racism in newsrooms isn't something that has been very obvious as a societal problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of shifting gradually. But I think um, it's still a space that needs to be, you know, it's still not a comfortable space to say the least. Because I think um, for me as a Black person, obviously it's almost like I've always had to, either, like, kind of think twice about saying or speaking up. Mm -hmm. It's always been disturbing, you know, if maybe sometimes I've not been involved in certain stories, but I'm sometimes aware that the people behind the story are all white. And, you know, if they're talking about migration affecting mostly brown and black people, um, for me, it's not even... A question of them just getting the story right. I think it just sort of says a lot about power dynamics, mm-hmm. and I think um, to not reflect on that is problematic. Um, but of course, I haven't—I haven't been in a position to change that as one mm-hmm. journalist. I mean, of course, I yeah, have people of color as well, and I've had these, you know, uh, discussions with other blacks or so people of color, mostly other people of color, because I haven't and kind of too many other black people.
1: <laughs> well, <Right. there's> that. <laughs> okay.
2: I'm not going to say, I mean, there are some black people, you know, of course where I work and everything, but it's always, it's never, it's not always been people on the same team. Um, so gotcha. it's, yeah. So then it sort of also makes for a different, discussion and of course sometimes it's also difficult to go to another black person and have that discussion to say the least because as you know it's always the same and you you know what i mean um (laughs) and i think that's sort of also that's something just because you're black doesn't mean you um and of course other black some black people might know also want to focus on their race and so i don't yeah. want to approach other black person and say oh hey, you know you're yeah. black and black so
1: <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this once again yeah gotcha.
2: exactly it's been much easier to have that discussion with um other people just people of color in general because of course yeah. then it's sort of like we kind of can connect on a certain level but mm-hmm. um But on the other hand, of course, there's also not a sense of competition because, of course, uh, as you know, when you are a person, a black person, if you're the only black person on your team, then Mm -hmm. it's like sometimes it's also this sort of Naomi Campbell thing going on, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) And Tyra walks in and sort of... (laughs)
1: I mean that I might be go the, there. That might be the best metaphor you for anything. Because if you I'm said not. it, and I knew exactly, I don't know why, I was like, yeah, because she's Naomi. Uh, she's and the I, one. <laughs> yeah.
2: She's the one, exactly. And here comes Tyra. How dare you? No, it's not. Okay. It's sort of a, a sense of, um, like there can be only room for one person Mm. who's black here, or there can be only room for one person of color. And I think other people of color experience it. But I think it's different when I speak to um, maybe an Arab colleague or a colleague from, you know, the Middle East or South Asia, they Mm -hmm. don't see themselves as like in competition with me for the same opportunities if they're the only person on my team who's you know like different from me but but if I if I, when it's another black person they will always be compared to me and I will always be compared to them and that's just gotcha. always the problem And I, and I don't think it's because we don't want to work together or whatever it's just because of the way society or the way you know in general that sort of hands out and then it sort of you have the i would call it the naomi tyra complex and <laughs> right, right. and so um and of course naomi has sort of moved on from that phase and she went and spoke tyra you know the story <laughs> right and i don't want to get into that that's not what the podcast is about today
1: <laughs> but but you but, um, <laughs> but you but you brought up a good point though i think that I mean, isn't that the challenge though when you're the only of anything is that you are acutely aware that you are the only person there. And so you realize that you don't want to lose that position because God knows however hard you work to get in mm. there. And then someone else walks in and it's annoying because I think we've all been there, but someone else walks in and because you happen to be the same skin color... <laughs> Is it, am I going to be compared to this person? Or more importantly, is this person going to be the someone who is going to replace me? Exactly. And, I, and I think part of it is a scarcity mentality only because many of these spaces have not been traditionally open to many of us that you just, you get a good thing and you're scared to lose it. And then, and then to, I,
2: I, I, I was just going to add, many of these places also just make room for that one person uh, in general. And I think this is not a narrative that black people have, you know, come up with themselves. I mean, if you read, um, the, the the in a, in uh, Afropian we just spoke about Johnny Pitt, Pitts and I. I, just I think, mean
1: they need to give me I, some affiliate money for all the talk and we're doing. <laughs> we'll,
2: we'll we'll come back to him because I think he mentions <laughs> an example of someone who works within. I don't want to speak too much about my own experiences because I'm still I still work where I work. It's still working. And I, and I and I don't want to get into that, but I, I think uh, I would rather quote someone else's experience um and i think i've also spoken to other you know other people you know in the media world and i think um i think he's his description of this experience where there's a black guy who is you know uh supposed to be like to do a news reading role or something and then the reaction they give him is that they only have they already have another black person So, or something like that. So he's not seen as a newsreader. He is seen as a black person. And since they already have that black person. Right he will not even have the opportunity to show what he can do because there's only room for that single one. And I think that's the point. And um, I think that's how black people and even some other people, persons of color, sometimes and not everyone. I don't want to speak of every group here. I think that's how most of them are made to feel. And I think that feeling is even stronger when you're a black person, I think. Um, Mm.
1: And so do you think that this summer, um, with obviously the following, you know, following the George Floyd protests and obviously it became this conversation. I mean, it's this is the conversation I've almost had with every person so far on the podcast because it's been outside of COVID, right? This has been one of the most dominant story in general that we all have sort of been a part of. Have you found that there are more conversations that are that are starting to happen, that might even be leading to a little bit more of a change in the the industry. And granted, it's been a few months. So are you even seeing a little bit of momentum as a reaction to what happened?
2: I think there's definitely more discussions going on. Hmm. But I think what I don't see, and um, I think I will limit myself to German media now. No, that's <laughs> totally even fine. Just be more, that's because yeah. uh, it's the space I'm in and it's just sort of the space I'm comfortable talking about. Um, I think there's not enough commitment mm. and um, there's not enough goal setting. And I think mm. it's also about not naming things because of course, you know, in Germany, People don't want to speak about race so i think you know if there is anti-black or anti you know like when you speak of specific groups of people then you have to name it and i think it has to be clear like you know if if we want to move on we have to be clear about who's missing in the newsroom and whose perspective Mm. isn't there and then you need to go out and say we want to hire these kinds of people within this period of time and we're going to try to measure against that goal going forward and you need to communicate that out to you know the public and i think that's just not there i haven't seen an organization actually come out and publish goals and it needs to be done and i think the, the reason why i think it's problematic um within the german context is because it's also you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the media system, but uh, in Germany, much like in the UK as well, interestingly enough, uh, they kind of copied the UK system after the Second World War, actually, uh, when they were like building up the media, um, the national public uh, broadcasting system, and people pay a TV slash radio license fee. So anyone who owns like a Uh, Well, pretty much every household has to pay it, basically. Mm -hmm. So I pay about 52 euros um, every three months. So for a year, it adds up to about 200 euros, roughly, in Mm TV slash radio license fee. And that's money that every household in Germany pays. It's a lot of money for Mm -hmm. the public broadcasting system. And that money goes to the public broadcasters. So they do get... A lot of money and to not have certain segments of the population represented so you know there is no like um i would call it i would say there's no quota for you know muslims for instance in germany that's not of course an ethnic identity but we Mm -hmm. have a huge segment of the Mm -hmm. population um there's what's called um there's a Like an advisory body, and I believe they don't have a Muslim person sitting on that advisory body for the public broadcasting systems, Mm. and I think that's also something that needs to change. So I think in terms of representation, it would be nice to tie in representation in terms of who gets to make the you know the news that we consume, and that's not just the person you see on camera. Mm Know, camera people in terms of you know people who are deciding on you know which stories get done so commissioning editors and that sort of thing I think that also needs to be tied to like population I mean I would also go as far as also tying to maybe you know certain you know depending on how things are you know like when you can actually tie show like you know like German Turks for instance are a huge mm-hmm. minority and yet you don't see a lot of them and they don't really they're not present within the media system as much as they should be. And so I think that's something that's just lacking. And I think that is something that I haven't seen happen. We haven't seen people actually have discussions about making, saying we're going to try to have 10 people hired within the next, until 2025 or whatever. (laughs) Right. It needs to be clear. And I think it needs to be clear in a sense, because first of all, it shows that they are thinking about it and they want to commit to something. And then it also needs to be clear because I think I also want to be able to call them up on it. And, you know, <laughs> and then, of course, they also need to be able to explain to people why they haven't reached that goal. Of course, it's okay to have a goal, but it, maybe they will fail. And it's fine for them to fail, but at least they should be trying to reach it. And I think that's something that needs to happen. And I think um, there are so many Germans um, of you know, color and black Germans now, especially younger Germans, and I think they... <coughs> most of them are not switching on to the public broadcasting systems as much because they just don't see themselves in it, you know? And it's mm-hmm. just not like who they see on screen. It's also about how the product feels. And I, I I, don't know. I believe, which is why I said I tend to have a problem with the idea when I see something that has only been done, been done by, say, white colleagues, and we're talking about migration, if it's a big story, and there was not a single person of color or black person involved in the story, I have a problem with that because... It's also, there is something intrinsic in the story when, you know, like when people tell a story that affects them or impacts them personally, the way mm-hmm. they go about it is very different from someone who maybe also is passionate about telling the story and telling the truth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is, of course, everybody's version is slightly different anyway, <laughs> but I'm telling... Right telling the truth or sharing the facts, whatever you want to call it. Um, But the way you do it when it's something that impacts you or affects you or the people you love or care about or the people you can see yourself being or having potentially been. That is different. I think you just can't do it the same way. And I know like a lot of people might take issue with me saying something like that, but I I truly believe this. It is not the same way when a European is sitting somewhere in an African country telling mm. a story um, about, you know, starving children, as opposed to maybe when someone who grew up on the continent goes to the same region to tell that story, understanding very well that even though they are coming from a position of privilege, their lives were just maybe potentially likely to fall into, you know, the same you know, like turn out the same way had, you know, the government crumbled or, you know, something terrible happened to them and, or the, someone they know, you know, or they even maybe know people like that. And I think that is a huge difference. And for them, that person could be someone they know, um, at least I feel that, like that. And, and having grown up in Zambia, and I don't know how it is for someone who grew up elsewhere or even other people who grew up in Zambia. I can only speak of myself, but I truly believe that falling into poverty, for instance, or telling stories about poverty and migration and all of those things, I kind of feel like I can relate more to that because I know also the struggle, but I've also experienced the struggle and I'm aware of the struggle from the perspective of people I know who look like me. That's different. I see myself in them. It's not the same for, you know, someone who's white or even Asian in that case, but you know, we don't want to get into that.
1: (laughs) No, but you know what? I think that you've brought up exactly the things that i've heard from black journalists who are in the us right when we look at stories even like we we look we are in a presidential election and we look at how voters vote right and why they vote and the way they vote often those who are close to the communities, even if it is not their exact community, can bring a nuance and can bring a view that's very different. And I know you used a European as an example of telling a story in Africa, but I think even to a certain degree, let's say even if you're a European reporting on what's happening in the U S right. Mm-hmm. If you haven't lived here, if you don't get, you know, you know that this is a massive country, right. And that the experiences of a Midwesterner is going to be very different from a Southerner's from someone who's from new England or the West coast. Right. And so there is something about some, someone reporting who they're, they're objective enough to tell the story, but they know a lot of the historical Mm -hmm. background that they can bring that and bring the reader up to date and and to be honest I even wonder with some of the types of stories you've even mentioned if some folks who may have been hesitant to even put details out there might be more inclined because they do see someone that looks like them and that they may even trust that you may do the story justice right and what yeah, exactly.
2: Because I think um, the other thing that I think is also interesting because, of course, you know, we can talk about facts and everything and, you know, comes in, the great journalist comes in and tells the story as it is. But it's also about the person you're speaking to. How do they perceive you as the person asking them the questions? Mm. Now, that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. I think if I go to, you know, another Black person and I ask them the same very questions that a white person would ask them. Mm. Mm -hmm. The answers are not going to be the same, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: not necessarily. And the story we will get will not be the same. Mm Mm-hmm, agreed, agreed. That makes a huge difference as well. So we need to look at it, you know, and and I think that's important. Of course, we didn't say we should only send black reporters (laughs) (laughs) out.
1: Although, they need (laughs) need jobs, though. So I I don't think you shouldn't, but yes, no, I mean,
2: yeah. But of course, they're underrepresented. So I think um, the idea itself wouldn't be, you know, Wrong entirely, but I think we need to mix it up, of course. Yes, of course. Um, but I, I, I think the fact is that we also need to think of it that way. And I think we've only been getting one type of story in a sense because we have also had people, you know, the people doing the questioning and, you know, and speaking with the people and even looking for the stories tend to look a certain way. So I think they. Mm-hmm go about it differently and I think also what's at stake for them is not necessarily always the same and I I think um, it's important to consider all of that. I think it's really a hard balancing act but I definitely think that we need to have uh, involvement of more um, community journalists so people who come from those communities reporting about those communities and working with people maybe from outside the community. I, I think it should be something that should be collaborative and not um, someone being flown in for two weeks or right. a couple of weeks. Uh, or even just sort of, you know, being flown in for two to three years. Because of course it's not the same as when you know that as a context yourself and understand how certain, you know, nuances play into how the story is shaped as well.
1: I mean, I think a great example, I mean, at the time of this recording, there are protests going on in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And exactly. one of the, th- one of the, one of the things I've been encouraged by, especially been looking through social media is folks intentionally saying, look, amplify the Nigerian journalists that are on the ground amplify the people who are on the ground, right? It's real easy to sort of be somewhere else and, and try and dissect the situation. But the people who are on the ground, the people who know the layout, they know the history, they know why this campaign is going on, they know who's at the forefront, amplify them. And and that's something that I, I think I'm personally encouraged and want to see more in media overall because you are right. It is, there's something to be said when I think I don't the right is not the word but when there's a good match with who's telling the story and 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 the story that they are telling in the sense that as someone who has seen so many bad stories about Africa Exactly. Um, in particular. and But to be honest, so many bad stories just about Black and brown people in general. It doesn't even really matter where they are. But well,
2: I, well, I can tell you why that
1: is. I mean, you don't <laughs> even have to... You know,
2: you don't even have to... Who's doing the stories? Who's buying the stories? Who's, you know, who's taking the pictures? Who's filming them? Who's right. commissioning them? I, I, you know, who's, who's got the budget? Whatever. You know, however you like, um, it's pretty clear that it's generally not the people who the stories are about in those cases. Right. I think that makes a huge difference. And I think um, as long as it remains like that, we have a problem. But then, of course, we have a problem because as journalism, you know, stays sort of elitist, to use Mm -hmm. another corrupted word. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Which could be good or bad, but I mean, in this case, it sounds a bit more negative. As long as um, it stays like that, sort of like classist and elitist um, Mm -hmm. or exclusionary in terms of only including certain people and also even only including black people who are a certain way and people of color who Mm. tend to be a certain way, because it's sort of, you almost have to mold yourself to speak a certain way and dress a certain way and, you know, Mm. do certain things, go to certain universities and all of that in order for you to get in. Otherwise, you're never allowed into the club. And um, if it stays like that, then, of course, the people won't always read those stories and want to watch them. Because I think the audience isn't fooled. And I think social media has actually shown us that people would rather, you know, watch something crappy, which is or something that is not even in great quality, but maybe more authentic than... Mm-hmm watch something that doesn't reflect what they see as the truth. And I think this is the whole idea of truth because of clinical, I think a lot of people just reduce it to facts, but it's also about how you spin the story. It's mm-hmm. about who you speak to. It's, I mean, of course, you could tell a story extremely well, but if you speak to the wrong people, it shows that you just don't know the context.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: you don't understand the nuances of that place. So I need to also decide to speak to the right individuals in the story. It's not just about, you know, uh, having great pictures and, you know, having, you know, like, or even interviewing like a great person, one great person. But if you don't find the right um Experts or whoever to sort of explain what's going on and put everything into context, or even to be able to ask that expert the right questions, then yeah, he got it wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's just the way it is. And it's so easy to get it wrong. And people just don't buy it, I think, as much as they used to, because we're not the arbiters of truth as journalists. We aren't. And I, I know it sounds horrible coming from a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. We but it's true. <laughs> but it's true. We aren't the, we aren't the arbiters of truth. Um, and we, what we can do though, is we can provide nuance, we can provide analysis, and we can provide context. And of course, sometimes we do provide facts generally. But I think facts are not generally the story. Facts are just facts. The story is
1: something else. Mm. Oh my gosh! So that's a powerful quote. <laughs> and, and what I, um, what I wanted to do actually, and I've been doing this with everyone because I. my brain is also processing everything that you said but um as we're getting to the end of this podcast there's something that i've been doing called the lightning round Mm -hmm. (laughs) these are three questions not stressful as far as i'm concerned okay (laughs) i think (laughs) i set it up and then everyone's like oh god what is she gonna say um but these are just three questions that uh Whatever pops into your head, uh, I'll probably ask you why. So, you know, don't worry okay. about it. Okay, you ready? You, you okay. ready? ready. <laughs> okay. First question. Besides Germany, where in where in Europe would you live?
2: Besides Germany, where in? Oh God.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's usually the first response to any question
0: I ask. It'll pay uh,
2: oh God. Um. Where would I go? Oh i'm quite happy in germany right now and it's hard
1: but germany is not an option so you've got to pick another place another place
2: oh my god i think um i would like to try switzerland and i'm not (laughs) sure if it's the french speaking or the german speaking part (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> and you can speak both so I guess it works have you yeah. been to have you been to Switzerland
2: I've been to Zurich uh, only I haven't been to Geneva yet <laughs>
1: so, so based on Zurich okay I don't think I've I've been to Zurich and Geneva and by being I mean the airport I actually haven't gotten out I was gonna say why Switzerland what's the appeal Well, I think,
2: um, like I said, they have a French-speaking part and a German-speaking part. And I actually want to, if I did go, I would want to try the French-speaking part. I'd want to go to Geneva, because I really feel like I need to live, like, I need to live in a French-speaking country, if I can,
1: next. (laughs) Mm. To keep up the the French? Exactly. This is like a, this is actually like a part B, which just has nothing with (laughs) it. Yeah, this is a part B. Do you think you'll ever live back in Africa again?
2: I would like to try. I would like to try, definitely. Would it be, would it be Zambia or somewhere else? Definitely somewhere else. <laughs> okay.
1: okay, that's fair. <laughs>
2: Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry to the Zambians out oh God, there. Oh I, I say that. I'm sorry to the Zambians out there, but I uh, I guess I'm gonna sell out on that one. You're just, um, that
1: <laughs> somewhere else. I mean, I don't know. What, what would be on the short list? I I I, 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 have, I have a guess, but I don't know.
2: South Africa is that was my guess. <laughs> South Africa is top of the list right now. I just need to try to um, at least spend six months to a year there. I'd like yeah. to.
1: Yeah. I could see that. That was, that was my first thought. I'm like, I bet he's going to say South Africa. Yeah. Um, second question. What's a piece of advice you'd have for someone who want to break into journalism or communications, especially on the international scene? Wow. Uh, that's uh, I, I said think one,
2: one piece. So one, piece, one, piece. Okay. one piece. One piece of advice. One piece. Just one. It has to be a good one then. Um, Speak a foreign language.
1: Mm. Okay. Say more.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> speak a foreign language. because I think um, you have to speak a foreign language just because it makes a huge difference. So I would definitely pick... Um, a major language so i would definitely go for spanish french you know english uh obviously if you don't if you're not english speaking uh or if it's not in mother tongue or something then that would work as well uh chinese might be another one or oh, russian i think there's a lot happening <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> definitely go for that we're laughing
1: way too hard as americans yeah
2: <laughs> okay <laughs> all right Russian. definitely go for russian or chinese and arabic is probably good as well um, I think you definitely need to look for the spheres where things are interesting, but I think it has to be interesting for you because obviously you need to invest the time and effort and it's not going to be worth it if you're not enjoying it.
1: Mm. So definitely invest time in getting that, that language. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Last question. This is, this is kind of funny in, in light of the part B, C response. Um, for those who haven't been, what do you think is, is the best
2: Thing about Zambia oh the best thing about Zambia I think the best thing about Zambia is the weather to be mm. honest I mean there is a time of the year where it's not that great but it's not <laughs> very long um I think the weather is great because it's t- it's hot and dry when it's really hot in general and so um and it's not humid, so that's really good. So it's not generally sticky, and I like that. So the weather is great, and I think there's other great things too, but I, like I said, I, 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 I mean, I've been limited to one thing right now, so I'll say the weather. <laughs> yeah. I always miss the weather. I, I do miss the weather, like in general. That's what I really miss. Um, and sometimes it's not that great, like I said, like anywhere, but I think in general they have a fairly good <laughs> weather, like compared to like other countries in the tropics, you know, it's in a plateau and it's much cooler cooler than it should be and so it's it's very very nice i would say you know
1: yeah. well thank you sir for giving me your time i always enjoy speaking with you and i mean you 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 dropped some knowledge you shared some books so i'm gonna put those in the show notes because um, i do think people should read afropean and i'm motivated <laughs> to finish god <laughs> I okay. <laughs> think you started it. <laughs> you know, like I was saying. So I'm, I'm. I'm. i think that, it, you know, some of the thoughts you've shared have been really impactful, and I especially appreciate kind of your experiences in the media. So thank you for coming onto the show. No, thank uh, you for having me, and uh, I'm glad we could do this.
2: I hope we can do this again at some point. I'm more oh, than happy I, to do that
1: like, uh, I mean, you press, and I yeah. are. I was going to say you and I are probably just going to end up with a show because every time we have these conversations and then I think more and more about what we could talk about. And, um, yeah, like I said, whoever wants to do that passport thing, <laughs> just, just say that discredit me. I don't care if you take the story, but I think that's worth it. So thank you again. And thank you for listening. The Global Chatter from the Black Expat is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is executive produced by Justin Williams. You can find all episodes of The Global Chatter on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcast.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.